Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of QSR Uncut. I'm your host, Danny Klein, editor of QSR Magazine, and joined by my colleague and co-host, Ben Coley. And so this week, we are talking to Michelle Falcon, restaurant entrepreneur, keynote speaker, author, a lot of different things going on. Kind of the uh, main focus we're going to get into, as you'll find out soon, is company culture. I don't really need to uh, kind of explain why that's a big deal. I, I think it was a big deal before COVID and probably 20 years ago, but we're just now at the point, and Michelle, you could probably agree with this, where it feels as though the employee has more leverage um, probably than they ever have, and that's kind of shifted the scales a little bit. So Michelle, before we get into a lot of these topics, if you want to just tell everybody a little bit about your background, a lot of yeah. different threads there. So um Got to buckle up for this one. <laughs> the common theme amongst er, uh, everything I've done in my career is, is really threefold. It's uh, career development, uh, customer experience management, and company culture. Uh, company culture being uh, the overarching umbrella of recruitment, interviewing, onboarding, uh, all things people or, or you know, HR. Um, and my career has seen many different twists and turns. Uh, 2007, I left business school um, to my parents' um, dismay. I'm, I'm, I'm South American, so my parents are very traditional in that you go get your degree and then you go work for a company for 40 years and then you call it a day. So when I told them that I was actually leaving business school to work for the world's largest junk removal company in Vancouver, uh, which is 1-800-GOT-JUNK as a call center agent, you know, I think my mom cried, my dad yelled, and then I apologized and said, uh, I, I got this. Like, I think, I believe I know what I'm doing. Uh, I spent five years there. At the time, they were voted the best company to work for in Canada two years in a row. And that's, this is a garbage company going against um, banks and, and so forth. And th it's where I learned how impactful company culture can be to your top and bottom line, your brand. Um, and it was my real world MBA. I got promoted five times in five years. It was where I learned about customer experience management. Uh, I was sent to Zappos's head office um, when they were you know, the, the darling of, of company culture as well too in the US to learn. Uh, and I really just put my head down and studied these topics. Um, because some people think company culture is a nice to have. It really is a must have in all companies that will be around for the next several decades. And it pays. And, and we can unpack that in a moment uh, and what that means to restaurants. Um, then I ventured off. I became a management consultant. Um, I was 25, um, getting flown out, getting paid good money uh, by companies. You know, the first time, the first big company that ever reached out to me, I thought it was a prank. Um, it was, I remember the gentleman's name. His name was Troy Fairchild. He was the, the senior vice president of retail for Verizon Wireless. And I was working for my parents' kitchen table. He did not know this, of course. Uh, I didn't know how to send an invoice. I didn't know how to do, write a contract. Um, but I knew my stuff in regards to people and customer experience. Um, I spent several years doing management consultant uh getting hired by McDonald's Canada, Subway, Electronic Arts, many different industries. And this is the thread that I was that we were talking about before we jumped on is the thread between everything that's happened in my career and what I've taken into restaurants now is, you know, people, right? It, it, we are in people businesses. And, and I know that sounds like a platitude, but the companies that are actually able to speak this, but then create operational 
uh, plans and strategic plans every quarter that support that are the ones that are, are winning right now. And, and we see this all in the media. Um, 2016 is when I moved to Toronto from Vancouver. My business partners and I started a hospitality company. We grew from zero to $20 million and 250 employees in two years. That was really hard. Um, and then uh, 2019, I said, I want, I'm Canadian Peruvian. Uh, if you know a bit about food, you know that Peruvian food is phenomenal. You know that Nobu restaurants are Japanese Peruvian restaurants, uh, 4,000 different types of potatoes. They're the potato capital of the world, largest exporter of quinoa in the world. And, and I can go on and on and on. And it almost sounds unbelievable when I tell my best friends these things, they think I'm lying. Um, but what I'm trying to do, and it, I know it's been said to death, is I'm replicating uh, what Chipotle has done for you know the Mexican burrito starting in Denver with Steve Ells um, for proving cuisine. Um, trying to do what Howard Schultz did for Italian coffee with Starbucks for proving cuisine. And my newest brand is called Brasa Proving Kitchen. We start in Toronto. Uh, we've opened five corporate stores in 15 months during the pandemic, and now we have our eyes set in a, to the U.S. Uh, for 2023. So that was, uh, I don't know, maybe 12 years unpacked in a minute and 20 seconds, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I've done this well, a few times, guys. <laughs> well, I think you're I think you're our first Canadian uh, podcast guest here on QSR Uncut. So. Oh, sweet. Thank you. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, we, there are a lot of markets that, that kind of touch both ways. But, you know, I, I guess to start before we get into the culture, I mean, what are you, when you look at the U.S. and you're talking about growing, how is it different than, you know, what you've been doing in Canada? I mean, what are some things that you have to identify right now and, and realize are, it's going to be a little bit of a different experience for you? Yeah, there's the technical, like the tax. I heard you guys have a crazy tax code that's different than ours. Um, the tax, the legal, yeah. all those things, of course. But what I love about the U.S. market is that it's often when people, when I talk to investors or, or just anybody that'll listen, their first reaction is, oh, yes, there's a large South American population or Latin community in the U.S. Your food should do well there. Our target audience actually isn't the traditional Peruvian. What I love about the U.S. is that, you know, it's a melting pot. There's so many different cultures. So um, the everyday person in the U.S. has already been trained to enjoy these flavors that are different. So Peruvian restaurants in the U.S., there's many uh, Peruvian restaurants uh, in most markets. So many people have already been trained that Yes, this food is not that foreign. I've had it before, perhaps, um, whether it's Miami, Los Angeles, or New York. Um, and then, of course, the, the competition, right? It's you got to bring your A game. There's a lot of competition, more so than in, in Toronto. Um, so I always knew that this was going to be a U.S. growth brand. Uh, I just happened to start in Toronto because it was the pandemic and I couldn't really move. Yeah, you know, I think a Peruvian place actually just opened right by our office, Alpaca. Yeah. That's yeah, it, it, I, yeah. I, I, that's very Peruvian. Uh, by calling it Alpaca, it's very Peruvian. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a rotisserie chicken type of place. You know, I don't yeah. uh, know how else to explain it. I just went there last week for the it's first time. Like, um, it's like uh, pollo a la brasa. That's one of the national dishes in Peru. It's like Nando's if you were to compare it to something like right. Portuguese chicken, but now it's Peruvian chicken. Of course, I'm biased. So if you were to ask me which one's better, you're going to 
probably expect a certain answer, right? But yeah, they had French fries as the base of what I ordered. That's uh, that's about all I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was solid. But yeah, um, I guess let's let's so let's get into some of this culture stuff. I think a good way to start, you know, if you're talking to restaurant folks in general here and. You know, I think you made a good point there that it's definitely lip service for a lot of brands that everyone, I've never met a restaurant chain who told me it was not important, but I have met a lot that don't actually live that ethos to the, you know, actual, you know, part of what they do in the day to day. So if you're making that case for somebody of why they should care, where do you start? Well, show me an entrepreneur that doesn't care about their bottom line. So that's where I typically start. Now, is it the most authentic path one might take sometimes no because you don't always need to do things that are going to show up on your PL. Uh, often i i will tell people show me your PL and i'll tell you what matters to you the most you're not investing in culture you're not investing in recruitment interviewing and onboarding um but i would first ask these individuals would you want a family member of yours to be working for your company? Is this the type of culture that you'd want to welcome your son or your daughter? Um, whether that's how they're treated and how they're paid. Um, because of the pandemic, as you referenced earlier, yes, team members and employees have more leverage than ever before. Um, however, the way that we meet that at Brasa is we are going to create this culture of learning and growth, right? So we have growth modules where we teach our team members how to ask for a raise, right? How to quit properly. What happens if somebody tries to poach you? So we have all these obscure modules that I show to my entrepreneur friends and, and restaurant friends. And like, that's, that's absurd that you're doing that. Well, we've had, and, and I'm not, this is not an extension of the truth. We've had seven consecutive months of zero turnover with 75 employees. Nobody has been late. And I'm even taken back by this. My real estate agent said, Michelle, you got to be careful how much you grow because you're going to have a labor. There's a labor crisis going on. I was like, I know, but we're building something that's different. So to go directly back to your question and why one should even explore this and step away from paying lip services. One, how much does it cost you every year by having this high turnover? A lot of people haven't equated it. I know some people that haven't equated it because they're scared of the number. And then two, what type of trying to brand are you trying to build? Like, are you, do you want people to revere you? Not just your best customers, but your suppliers, potential investors, your lawyer, and, and most importantly, your people. Um, I have to be very proud of what I build. And I can tell you both, the moment that I find my most fulfillment is not when I get my P&L for all stores every week. Yes, I, ex I do what everybody does. I go straight to the bottom line and I work my way backwards, right? I'm looking for the number that I want. That will make me happy for 17 seconds. What makes me most engaged is when I hear our general managers are promoting people. We're paying more. We're paying people. We're elevating them because it's a part of our learning and development culture that we've created. That gives me meaning. 
we can only afford to give these raises because our bottom line looks nice. So profit is an outcome or an output of having a people first culture. So I have to, I have to ask you a follow up on one thing you mentioned there. Um, obviously the turnover statistic mm-hmm. was pretty wild, but the thing about being late, um, that might be one of the wildest things I think I've ever heard. Not, not just in the restaurant industry, but um, I mean, how, how in the world did you manage that? Because I have never heard anything even remotely near that. And personally, I could use that advice for uh, <laughs> my staff too. So, so look, I, I know it doesn't, it doesn't sound believable. I've even been taken back by this, but I can equate it to something. So we have a very different way that we recruit and we interview and, and we can unpack that in a moment. But I'm observing from the moment that somebody even interacts with us. You know, of course, do they show late up late for the interview? If they show up late for the interview, they're not even getting an interview. And and I know that might be obvious, but I'm also, because we do our, our virtual interviews via Zoom, I'm also making note because Zoom will tell you when somebody's logged in. If somebody's logged in 15 minutes before, our people operations manager is documenting that. That tells me something about somebody. Right? If somebody says, oh, I had bad Wi-Fi, which is why I'm late, that's not my problem. You should have known that Wi-Fi is a thing and sometimes it goes in and out. So I'm watching the behaviors of it. But then, and after this podcast, I'm actually hosting uh, three individuals, first day company culture training. And I and I will always do it. I, I don't know how I'm going to scale myself to do it, but I, I will always be a part of it because they need to hear certain messages from me. But here's the late part. Late isn't just a disrespect to somebody's time. It is a habit. If you are late for work, does that give me the permission to pay you late? Legally, I'm, you know, and morally, I won't do that, right? But what type of message are you sending us? Okay, we can pay late. What if we, so you're going to be late for your shift. What if we're late to order our produce? What if we're late to order our uniforms? The thing, the whole company just starts unraveling and becomes a habit everywhere. Now, all that late compounds to a poor operation. So when I'm hosting this training, you start seeing like almost the light bulb turn off, turn on, on in people's minds. And that's when they start seeing the connection. Because if you think of when we were children, you know, my dad would always just yell at me about not being late. That's not, that didn't help me understand why that matters, right? It was just like, I can't be late because this man is yelling at me or this teacher is yelling at me, right? So it, it, it's helping people understand it, understand that being late isn't just a disrespect to somebody's time. It becomes a habit. And now we've given permission for everybody to be late everywhere. Um, so that's a, a, a big element to it. Um, we're, we're good at hiring. Um, and people um, see what we're trying to build. They want to be a part of it. And quite frankly, and this is the message I told our management team yesterday on our weekly uh, meeting. I said, if you have any team members who will not take us up on the opportunity to expand their careers, then they can't be a part of what we're building. Um, and, um, you know, it's going to be hard at scale. Believe me, believe me, at scale, it's going to be hard. Um, but we can't sacrifice our values. This is the foundation of the company. So um, take us through a um, hypothetical um, situation. You know, you um, say there is um, someone who happens to come in late um, to their shift. Like, 
tell us, kind of describe, you know, the steps that, got, that leadership would take and, and how you guys kind of would approach um, the discussions with that um, employee. Yeah, uh, one of our values is continuous candor. So we speak plainly with each other because we're adults and we have thick skin. I'm not going to be like, oh, hey, Danny, you know, you, you're late today. And, uh, you know, with soft messaging, we'll say, Danny, you're late. You know, that's unacceptable. Let's get to work. That's it. Like, it's not rude. It's factual. And it's a clear message, right? Because we're all trying to build something here together as adults. Now, if it's the second time of late, um, in, in Canada, we have to, after three months, we have to document it a certain way. So just for legal reasons, and, and I will soon learn what it's like in the US. But we are, we're quick to fire. Um, don't just I, I can't apologize. Uh, I, I'm not going to be apologetic about it. Uh, we've given you opportunities and, and that's it. And we're starting to build a reputation where people do want to come work for us, where we're getting a lot of candidates come in through word of mouth, which is I'm, I'm so thankful for that. There's a lineup of people that will replace you. Um, and that's meritocracy is just, you know, you don't perform, you're out. Um, so. I hope you weren't expecting that a huge, like formal kind of uh, description of what we do, (laughs) but like, yeah, Yeah. no, it's, it's very plain, right? It's, you can't, we're adults, right? And we're going to speak to each other very plainly, very similar to, you know, the conversations that I may have with my fiance or my best friend, they're going to give it to me straight. Um, They're not going to, you know, take this long winded road to give me this one message, just cut straight to the message. Yeah, I mean, we we have this workforce uh, right now where you have really low unemployment, but a ton of job openings. That's kind of the, someone asked me the other day, how is that possible? And I think it's essentially because you have a lot of job hopping right now compared to sure. a few years ago. So you have people who are quitting with nothing lined up, this, you know, so-called great resignation or whatever, where, you know, people don't really look at their jobs is like, I have to have this like they did before. At least that's the theory that some people are promoting. So, you know, what I've seen in a lot of companies, and you probably talk about this, is is that sort of line that you're taking of being honest and hard to people. People are almost afraid to do it because they're worried about like, you know, this guy might leave and then what am I going to do? And am I going to bring somebody else in? And, and I agree with your point that you really can't be held to that sort of, uh, that crutch, but you see it all the time these days. Yeah, and and you know with the job hopping part, and and this is uh, this is on our Q one two thousand twenty three operating plan. Um, something called reverse recruiting. Now we all know what recruiters are. You bring us in, right? We're gonna have somebody on our people team whose responsibility is to get people out. So what we say is we want you to grow with or without us. If you want to grow with us, then we're going to pave a path for you for that. We have some, one of our team members who's actually moving into an operations coordinator role at our you know, growing head office. But you know there might be Danny, the part-time team member, who is, we actually have somebody named Noel, um, who is a computer engineer. Um, studying. He's in his last degree or last year and he's a phenomenal team member. Um, and I know that one day he's, he wants to leave. He wants to go work for this fintech company called Wealth Simple. It's the this big fintech company in Canada. And he knows that I have a large network and his job when he graduates is to go to the reverse recruiter 
and the reverse recruiter has to go to Wealthsimple and say, hey, we got a phenomenal person for you. Uh, do you want to interview them? So it's like, I want people to see Brass as a university where it's like your alma mater, you graduated from it. Now, there are still going to be people that just kind of, they get past our interview process and we probably shouldn't have hired them in the first place and do the job hopping. But I'm okay for people to leave, right? Like I, you know, as long as, and what I tell my team members is you leave, but trust me, I've seen a lot of people ruin their, ruin their reputations in the last two weeks. This is why we teach them how to do it properly during their first day of onboarding is one day you're going to quit. This is the path to be successful and my network will always be open to you. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, as there's no way she listens to this podcast, so it's cool. But <laughs> but we interviewed somebody a couple months ago, and um, on her resume, she had job hopped to six different places in six years. So okay. um, that was kind of the red flag that we were saying, like, I don't know what I'm going to obviously ask her about this. And her her response was that she gives the company a year. And if it doesn't work out for her, she leaves. And that happened six times. Um yeah, maybe there's yeah, six companies or yeah. Well, so so we didn't. So I couldn't get over that concept. So I was like, I don't want to hire her. So we rejected her, and she kind of, um, you know, to our HR department, really, you know, let her have it about us wasting her time and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, well, I guess I we dodged a bullet on that one. Um, so that's all you need to know. That interviewing is an interesting thing. Like we we look at it, so we have our processes and we look at it every quarter and refine it you know, maybe we change an interview question here or there and we just kind of look at it holistically uh but there's professional interviewers like there you know you hire them and then they show up and you're like who are you like uh you're not the person i talked to for yep. several you know several times that is that is the truth for sure mm-hmm. So, you know, over the, you know, the past few years, you know, we've seen, um, you know, big stories about, you know, national coverage of at restaurants, these big chains like McDonald's might be the, it's the one that comes immediately to mind where the, the company culture just like was a complete mess and you see new leadership coming in um, from the, from the CEO to new HR people trying to, trying to clean it up, trying to make it better, take new steps to make it better. But I want to go back to like the beginning of, you know, such a mess, you know, what kind of, um, what, what are the steps that, you know, sometimes leadership misses when they're trying to maintain a common culture or trying to, to build it, you know, how does, how does that, that kind of that downfall begin and, and unravel and get to the point where, you know, changes are, are necessary and it gets, you know, kind of like, like infected at every level of the company. Yeah. So I, I see this in two respects. There's maintenance and then there's rebuild, right? So I'll start with the rebuild uh, and I'll use a non-restaurant example, just so, you know, it can be extremely, uh, we can, we can look at a different industry and ask ourselves if this is happening in our industry, uh, Uber, right? So Travis Kalanick leaves. Uh, I'm forgetting Dara. I can't pronounce his last name. I'm forgetting it. Um, comes in as a new CEO. And the first thing, the first public thing he did was change the core values of the company. So uh, I think he changed all of them actually uh, for a company that he believed uh, based on conversations with people in leadership and all throughout the company wanted to build your core values as a company. And, and I know it's, 
sometimes you you talk about core values and mission statements and vision statements and you get a kind of an eye roll and you're like oh yeah you know every company has those but how many of them actually live and breathe it every single day it really is you know for me, I have core values for myself also, right? Uh, and it's kind of what, how, how I shape the way that I behave. But with companies that are looking for restructuring, it always has to start there. And I'll reflect on something Howard Schultz said, and, and I'm paraphrasing, he said this several years ago on a podcast with Alec Baldwin. And he said, um, if you're trying to build a hundred story skyscraper, you've got to start off with a foundation, which is often your values of your company. And your values have to be the values every day. Like you can't like, you know, values for a person. You can't like put on your professional hat on, come to work and then take the professional hat off and then put on your personal hat, right? It's got to be the same damn hat, right? Um, And the same with companies. It's got to be the same through and through. From there on the restructuring side, once you've established or refined these values or revisited them, now you have to do a deep audit of who works here and do they fit within this? Now for a company like McDonald's, yes, they have lots of resources and, and people on board. That's obviously a big, if not one of the biggest undertakings in in like any business. Um, Netflix, um, I, I, I study a lot of different industries to learn what they're doing to see how it might be applicable into, into restaurants. Now, uh, Reed Hastings, the I think he's the co-CEO of Netflix now, but he said uh, something that I really liked in his book, No Rules Rules. He said, uh, we will not tolerate brilliant jerks because the cost of teamwork is too high. And like, that's one of those quotes where like, ah, I wish I came up with that. Like that's, that's yeah. paradigm shifting for me. It was at least. So for me, when I, when I'm asked on a podcast, how do you describe your company closures? Friendly high performers. You can't be friendly and not perform, and you can't perform and not be friendly. You have to be both. And sometimes it makes hiring harder, right? Because you've got this integrity, ways that you, you know, values that you have. So on the maintenance side, like how do you endure this? It's a habitual audit, right? Like of how we're improving, how we're performing. And you have to make tough decisions quickly. Uh, I'll use a personal example. My fiance and I work as a couple, because we're constantly touching base and auditing how we are coming and showing up for each other. And you have to do that at scale at at the business. So one of the things that we do, and this might seem like overkill for anybody listening, but it's working for us uh, with that zero turnover. Every Tuesday at 4 p.m., our our general managers get together for some peer learning with our head of people, Laura and we do something called the traffic light model we will go through every single team member in a high impact meeting and we're labeling them red yellow or green anybody who's green of course is doing phenomenal but we also document like why are they green and that information gets funneled over to me and my director of operations and then guess what I'm going to do with Simon who I found out was green yesterday um I'm going to take him out for lunch. I'm going to go touch base with him. I'm going to go have a Zoom with him and say, hey, what's up? Um, and then obviously yellow is we need coaching. Um, but this, remember about the friendly high performers. It's like you got to live within our values. 
and you got to perform and that's going to dictate where you fall in that traffic by model red is we're offboarding you right now so it's just constantly looking at it looking at it looking at it because uh one thing i learned earlier in my career from the the garbage company was inspect what you expect you can't go six months and not look under the hood of your car and you know in this case your business and if you do let six months go by don't be surprised by what you find you neglected it you took your eye off of it and now it's unraveling so uh, for any businesses that are my size right now you know we're at about the 50 team member headcount actually close to 75 um now is the time right you got to build those systems and processes now because believe me i've seen this this has been my career it becomes infinitely more difficult and expensive to have to undo things so you know keep refining um at this point what uh what if you have a friendly low performer ah good question uh we will coach them because friendly like you know friendly matters to me a lot a lot um and and largely because proving if you ever go to Peru, you're going to come back and be like, why is everybody so happy here like people are just very friendly so that needs to be an extension of our brand uh we will coach you right we can coach you like our menu is so easy to make we only use convection ovens right it's simple right it's almost automatic um so we can coach you on those things i can't coach you how to be kind i can't coach you uh, on how to be on time right those things I, I i'm not a psychologist right like i can't figure out why you're such a you know, maybe a cruel person, right? I'm not in that business. So to answer your question, Danny, yeah, that's coachable. Um, speed, work ethic, I don't know if I can coach that either. Um, I think you either got a stronger work ethic or you don't. Um, but I'm, I'm down to coach. I don't want people to listen and be like, wow, this guy will fire people on the spot really quickly. That's not the case, right? But we do have standards and they're really high because we're trying to get to 100 stores by 2027 and that's not going to happen with um, without people I'll share one last thing about Netflix. Uh, that was a paradigm shift for me and brought into restaurants and it's working. So we, our labor percentage is 18%, really low, and we pay top of market. So in Canada, um, it's 15%, or in Ontario where I am, it's 50% minimum wage. We're at 19 and we're actually going to bump it up to 20 um, with a 19% labor percentage because of something I learned from Netflix that I brought into uh, our restaurant group called Talent Density pay people more, have less people. And it's working. Uh, recruiting, we in in two days, we had 219 applicants for a team member position. Um, and, and, you know, if I'm going to get really in the weeds right now, um, for anybody listening as a tip, if you do pay a, a decent wage, don't put it into the body of the job description, put it in the subject line. Right. That has to be. So I've been A-B testing job descriptions with and, and because that's the first thing that they, they, they care about is going to be a magnet. Now, if you don't have the luxury of paying as much, I understand that that can't be um, a benefit for you. But um, yeah, so talent density, it's it's working for us. And, and you know, of course, I want to have less people. Right. Managing people is hard. You, you sort of answered um, what my question was going to be, but, you know, I was going to say, you know, uh, I've heard stories of, I know, with the, with the labor shortage being the way it is, you know, restaurants having to hold on to these, these type of employees because they feel like, you know, if they let them go, you know, will they be able to find somebody to replace them, you know, with how 
um, you know, um, hard it is to kind of find workers to, to come in um, yeah. for a shift. So, but it seems like you guys don't really have like because and, and I know you've mentioned earlier where if you if you find somebody's not doing their job correctly, you guys you know won't take too much time to to correct it, even if that you know means having to let go of the employee. So it seems like you guys aren't worried about you know the consequence of the labor shortage because you guys know that there's other people who could easily kind of replace them better people who could replace them immediately if if necessary it seems like well yeah like uh, i would be speaking out of turn if i didn't realize that yeah you know although recruiting like the least of my challenges right now is not recruiting that's very easy for us because of my history in what i did before restaurants right i had a biggest headache right now is construction right um that could be a different conversation for another time but um we had the pandemic made me stop for a moment and really look around right we opened our first location during the pandemic when everybody was saying labor shortage this labor shortage that so i knew that there was this challenge for the industry when somebody sets their menu pricing they typically go like this what's food cost what's the market What's my margin? There's the price. They're missing the most important part. What do I want to pay my people? So I started with what do I want to pay my people? So pay people isn't an issue for me. What's food cost? What's the price of elasticity or what's the market charge? Margin, price, right? So that I'm very thankful for that the pandemic made me pause and look at this and look around and say, oh, wow. Okay, so very advantageous. The pandemic was actually I, I'm going to sound like a jerk for saying this is actually kind of a good thing for me because it allowed me to stop and look at this because um, I am trying to build this to 100 units. So I had to build all the systems now. Here's one other thing. We never stop recruiting. Mondays at 4 p.m., Wednesdays at 4 p.m., we have a standing interview that we just fill the top of funnel. Regardless of whether our GMs on that Tuesday call tell us, oh, everybody's in the green, right? We're still going to keep recruiting and recruiting because, um, and this is where my keynote is speaking and kind of history and workshops comes into play. Let's say everybody's in the green, which is never happens, but let's just say. And then we have like five people that we want to hire. Well, what do we do with these people, right? So what we do is we put them into this kind of holding pattern called Brasa, Brasa um, uh, career, career Leadership, um, so it's this module where they'll attend, in, in other words, I'm going to say, hey, Danny, we don't have space for you yet, but attend this four-week kind of leadership boot camp, and it's hosted by me. So we've got them in this holding pattern because we know eventually we're going to need them, and then we can tap into that um, into that uh, pool of candidates, right? So um, to go – and I apologize. I don't even know if I'm answering your question, but um, I uh, – I, it's it just, it's like I said earlier, show me your PNN and I'll tell you what matters to you the most. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, where are the general, like the GL codes for, you know, people and, and, and all these things that we're talking about today? Like, time to start writing a check or reallocate what you're spending on your PR firm that costs you X. And I'm not saying PR isn't valuable, it absolutely is. But is there an opportunity to do some shaving over here so you can invest over here? Because I don't know how many times we've been told this, but we're in a people-driven business. Like, it, it totally is. And, 
Yeah, yeah I have a question for you. I, sure. I've heard this this a lot lately from brands is that they're trying to make the jobs inside the restaurants more enjoyable because of the competition. And part of that ends up being, you know, maybe you have a robot who's dipping French fries, you know, instead of a 17-year-old or, or whatever it might be. And sometimes when I hear that, I think, okay, that makes sense because, you know, somebody making $18 to cook in the back of a restaurant versus, you know, maybe working at Amazon, kind of hard to compete with. But to me, it often feels, that feels a little thin to me. Like there's probably a bigger issue going on if, if that's the, the task at hand. So, I mean, do you see that in the restaurant industry? Because it is hard work in comparison to trying to be a YouTube influencer. <laughs> you know, I get that line a lot from executives. They'll be like, you know, I talk to young people and they're like, I'm going to go become a gamer and I'm trying to get them to come in the back here and flip, you know, burgers. And it's not what it was 10 years ago. So, Well, I've, I've thought of this, right? Do I want a robot cutting our cucumbers because our team members don't want to cut cucumbers? Um, perhaps. Uh, I don't ever want to lose the human element of what we do and the hospitality part to it. I don't, I, quite frankly, I don't want to buy off robots as a consumer myself, nor do I want to run that type of business. Um, but I, I don't necessarily subscribe to what you, what you had suggested only because of this. We met, we hired somebody yesterday, um, sorry, last week named Amsel. This, you know, she's probably in her 50s, speaks five languages, just like somebody that just like kind of blew me away. I was like, I want to learn from you. And all she wants to do is the prep work, right? So like having a general statement of like, I don't know if we can find people that want to do this and that, that could be said about anything, really. I agree with you. Finding people, like, so what we do with our team members is during the first two weeks of onboarding, you're going to learn how to do everything in our store, right? And we've proven that that can be done. The two weeks following that, the GM is observing where should they be. So we have customer-facing team members who work our line, but then we have people like Amcel who are more prep. So it's really identifying, putting the right people in the right places, right? If you, you you want your goal scorers playing forward, you don't want them playing defense, right? And, and vice versa. Um, and we recruit for that also. If we know that we're light on people on prep, well, yeah, we're going to be tar- changing our job descriptions to target for that position. Um, so it's, there's no one size fits all. Like I worked at McDonald's, um, when I was 13 in Canada, I, I'm always taken back, but I, I don't think you can work at 13 in the U S but it, you here in Canada, you can. So whenever no, I tell I people, think so. yeah, whenever I tell yeah. people that they're like, what? Um, but then I was actually asked to be their national spokesperson for a, a recruiting campaign in 2018. So it, it came full circle. I share this with you because when I worked at McDonald's, yeah. Did I not like doing some of the, the work? While I was working at McDonald's, yeah. The fry part that you mentioned, yeah, I didn't really like that. It's hot, it's greasy, it's, you know, I would prefer to talk to customers, right? But guess what, Michelle? Pull up your socks. This is a job to get done. Now, do we want to talk about the generation? Generation? I'm 36, right? I think I could tell my dad, oh, dad, I don't want to do that. Yeah, right, right? So um, you would just say, be quiet and get it done. That's what I'm looking for. Is, is the individuals that know they have a plan for themselves, 
they know they have to eat dirt. They have to get dirt under their fingernails. It's hard to find. I understand that. But if you build this reputation of uh, having this uh, greater opportunity for people, um, you'll find them, right? And like I referenced earlier, if people aren't willing to extend their careers with us or without us by using us as a springboard to something else, then you won't be a part of what we're trying to build. And we're not going to apologize for that because we've got goals and we're all heading in a certain direction and you're going to stick out. Uh, and if you don't want to cut cucumbers, Johnny, then go work somewhere else. Go be that YouTube star. Yeah, recently I, I was, um, speaking of generation, I was interviewing two people who are both very young. Um, and I asked them both the same question about, you know, what's kind of your ultimate goal? And one of them wanted to work at, you know, Bon Appetit, very fancy, you know, magazine. And the other said, I'll just go wherever someone will give me that first job. <laughs> and that's the person I hired. <laughs> I, I- so, you know, yeah, and I told that to someone. They're like, "Were you, you know, hitting her for, you know, or penalizing her for having big ambitions?" And I'm like, "No, I just thought the other person was someone that you know would probably be willing to your point to get in the dirt, and they are probably more likely to end up at Bon Appetit than the person who thinks they're going to start there." In my opinion, that was just my my old school view of it, and that's the road I took. Yeah, I, you know, I started off my career in a call center. Like I was, I, I had the 4 a.m. shift in the summer. I was going to bed at 7 p.m. when I was, I don't know, early 20s. That's like, it was bizarre. Like something, you know, truth be told, sometimes I'd go straight from the bar straight to work. Um, and <laughs> that only happened once or twice. I would never recommend it. But um, but it's just, just a job to be done. And I, I want to find, you know, those individuals that, again, have a plan for themselves and were like, what I got to do, right? Look at sport. Look at, you know, Beyonce. Look at the highest performers in anything. You think they were entitled to saying, no, I don't want to don't want to sing on a Sunday. No, that's that's not the case. Yeah, in my first job, they handed me the contract and said, you didn't get into this to get rich. And I'll sign. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what I would be making. Actually, I mean, part of the reason I hired Ben was because he came from the struggle, too. So, yeah. You know, I identified that he, you know, he was working in a small newspaper in the middle of nowhere, and I appreciated that about him. And, and he appreciated that about us when he got here, too, because he had a good perspective in terms of understanding, you know, what work meant. Yeah, you know, going back to the late part that you had mentioned, how do you get people to show up on time? And, you know, a big part of it is just, like, respect and adherence to, like, okay, this is how they operate here. Um but it's how do you onboard people into the culture? What are the first things that they see and they feel? So one of the things that we do um, to set the tone on day one is we ask, and, and Danny, I'll, I'll, I'll do this interview question with you. Pretend that you're uh, applying uh, to work with us. Uh, we'll ask the question, what is an indulgence that you can't live without that costs less than $20? How would you answer that? Like this is outside of work we're talking here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, coffee, wine, this, that, like, you know, some of that comes to mind. Costs less than $20. Sure. So that's not bourbon. Um, <laughs> it's also probably, well, I guess it's wine. Um, I would probably say it is just, um, oh, man, I can't even answer this question. I would obviously not get this job. Um, <laughs> or Ben, how about yourself? <laughs> Danny, what do you think about, think about this? About is, yeah. Gosh, um, you know, 
I, I feel like my answer is going to make me not get the job. But, uh, <laughs> my, my immediate, I, I was thinking, of, I was thinking like, okay, well maybe I'd want to uh, say something like a, like a food or like a drink or sure, whatever. Sure. But, so but let's go down the food path. So we're, we're right. interviewing and you know, the food. Okay. So what type of food, Ben? Um, uh, I'll say uh, pizza. Sweet. Is there a particular type of pizza in North Carolina that you like? Is, is it like a pizza store or shop? Oh, I, I really like uh, Domino's. Domino's, great. What uh, what do you usually get on your pizza? Um, I usually uh, they have a, this um, seven ninety nine um, three topping pizza deal. So I usually every time I get uh, pepperoni, mushroom, and jalapeno. Sweet. So I you notice how I'm probing, I'm probing, I'm probing, right. I'm probing, I'm digging deeper, deeper, deeper. Uh, Danny, did you figure out what your answer might be? And we do this in group interviews, by the way, virtual yeah. group interviews. So yeah. I'm going to say coffee because I guess that, okay. although that's become almost $20 now. So. <laughs> dark roast, light roast, medium roast? Cold brew, so dark. Cold brew, okay. And any, any, I guess, any particular region of coffee that you like? like if you were to. No, I would, no. Essentially, just blonde roast, uh, actually, of any type of cold brew. Okay, got it. So great. We, I go on to the next question. You've forgotten about why I've asked this. You guys both get hired, let's say. You show up to your first day of culture training. And uh, on day one, the first thing we talk about is the thing, that's that gift bag that's right in front of you at your desk or in the learning room. And it's the thing that you said, right? Now, cool. That's, oh, nice. Thank you, right? But you have to understand why we're doing this. I didn't let Ben get away with the answer of just saying pizza. I probed and probed and probed to personalize it for him. And maybe like I go online and I buy like the Noid little stuffed animal or, or something like that from eBay or whatever uh, and put it in the bag too. But that is personalization. Now, when I tell Danny in the second module of training about how to personalize customer experiences, I've shown him how it's done, right? Not only that, like I've created an experience for both of you that you've never seen before in the workplace. This goes back to what you had just said about um, about Ben Danny and that like, you know, he noticed that I recognize something in him. So he's bringing his whole self to work. His engagement's high, right? I just created an experience for both of my new team members that they've never seen before. I've earned the permission to say, this is how we do things now. Now go get it done, right? I've shown you respect and hospitality, and now you're going to go perform it. Now here's the last kicker. This is on day one. You're about to go into two weeks of training. Your engagement has to be high so the knowledge retention resonates more with you. Uh, I literally, I wrote about this question in my book, and literally, and I'm not lying now, it's over a thousand companies now implement that question in their onboarding, including some franchisees of Subway in, in Ontario. Uh, but it's these little tactical things. Now, why is it 20 bucks? Because I'm cheap, right? Like I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a thrifty guy. Like I, it, it's, you know, everything matters to our PL. Um, but I, it still can be impactful. Um, one of our core values is cost conscious and risk tolerance, right? We're cost conscious people. Each customer gets one napkin. No human being needs seven unless you're eating wings. But, um, <laughs> You know, it's it's an example, you know, exemplifying the values. And, and Ben, this goes back to the question about maintenance is how you 
bringing the values into all the operating things that you do within your company. And these are the tactical things. And it's just, they're not expensive, right? They're just, they have to be designed. They don't have to be expensive. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I feel like I've learned a lot in this voice. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, a, I'm pretty, you know, honestly, I'm pretty new to being a manager. I got promoted to this role over like a year and a month ago. Um, so I was pretty used to being like an in the shadows type of employee who just put my head down and did what I had to do. And then suddenly I was in charge of a few people. Yeah. Um, holding the flag is a flag rare, right? Yeah. I mean, and yeah, that, and that's been a, that's been an interesting experience just kind of going from, you know, being someone, cause I've, I've come to really personally just kind of realize like I can't always just lead by example. It's not enough. You know, because you think like if I do this, they'll look at it and think I should also do that just because you're in the trenches with them. And then I've come, like I said, to kind of understand that that's really not a good enough strategy for me as a manager to expect people to look at it the way that I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm still learning, you know, I'm trying to figure that out right now. But, um, you know, because yeah. that was what my first boss was like. He was he was terrible at feedback, but. He was, he one time told me, you know, something like, well, you know, he was doing some menial task and I was like, why are you doing this? Like, you can give it to me. And he's like, I'm never going to give you something that I'm not going to do. And that's like the only thing he ever said to me. Yeah. But, but like, I realized over time, you know, that probably worked better for my generation than that mindset works for a younger generation now. Cause I saw that and it inspired me, but I don't know that it would have done the same to someone now who's in their 20s. And I'm sort of seeing what that's like. But Yeah, you know, I, I, I want to agree with that because it seems like everybody is saying this about the you know, Gen, Gen Z, Gen, Gen Z. Um, but then I see somebody like somebody named Simon that we just hired who's 20 or Miko who's 19. And I see myself as it really, I don't, I don't know if I can, like, it, does it come down to just like how they're raised and parenting? Um, how much, I think does, so. yeah, yeah, how much does yeah. social media influence their upbringing versus values from the household? Like, I, I, I do think it, it does. Yeah. Not it's definitely not a blanket concept because, you know, like, right. but a you lot know, because Ben, ben is pretty it, young, though. you know, right? Like, you know, we're I, talking about Ben like he's not here. <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> But well, you know, know, he he's he falls into that generation that we're talking about. Yet his mindset it feels like what the stereotype of is someone who's like thirty five. You know, yeah. so, so I don't so I don't think you could just credit that to it. But you do, I think, need to be aware that there are more of that now. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. I mean, again, like I said, I'm I'm still sort of learning. <laughs> so I appreciate you telling us all these things because no, I've definitely been taking notes about it. I'm uh, I'm paranoid of losing being irrelevant. Right. Oh, the things I did earlier in my career, I'm still doing it, which is why I look at anybody who will talk to me. I'll reach out to them from, you know, different industries, um, try to learn. Right. Because I'm, I'm extremely scared of being irrelevant in my leadership, uh, how I manage our teams, how we grow the company. Um, it also makes it more exciting, too, when you're still where when you're inventing. Um, we, every three months, we're looking at every system and process we have and looking just to continue to audit and audit and audit and improve and improve. And, uh, 
um, one of our core values is a little might you know get people to kind of tilt their head a bit, but it's uh, only, only the paranoid survive. And I learned that from Bob Iger from Disney. I think he said it on a no, it was Howard Schultz. Pardon me, it was Howard Schultz um, on that same podcast with Alec Baldwin actually, and uh, that's how we go like it's yeah we're good today our net promoter score on average across all stores is 72 uh which is very high and uh but that was last month right we got to bring it next month the month after um but uh yeah and that goes back to my leadership too and how i'm trying to just get better because i'm still a student i don't know everything nor will i ever want to know everything that's not even achievable for those of you wondering out there, Michelle's actually the same age as me, so I feel uh, like I got a lot to do in life. <laughs> no, still. no, no. <laughs> uh, plenty out there. You, you're a. Uh, you've had a long road to thirty six, so I, I, I think you celebrate yeah. that. Taking a probably a couple of years off my life is what my fiance said, but mm. I enjoy well, what I do. I'm uh, I'm married and have two children, so when that day comes for you, if you want to get there, you will lose more years off your life. <laughs> oh, yeah, I. That's a different conversation because yeah. I don't. I I recognize this too. I've often people will ask me for advice uh, on you know my career and so forth. And I said, listen, you can't take my word as gospel because I don't have kids. Yeah, I have a dog who I treat like a child, but I don't have kids. So don't tell me how I don't let don't listen to me about how I operate my day. Right. Because when I tell you I wake up at 445, it's not for the same reasons that you might. Right. And uh, so I'm very cognizant that I have a life that's different than people so, uh, than others because I don't have kids. So. Yeah, man, I'm not even going to get into that. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> talk it's, offline. I've, I've been trying to figure that out too lately, you know, um, cause I've had to accept that I'm not who I was before I had children. Like I can't be that guy. And that's, that's been tough. You know, I used to come into work sometimes when we do these stories at like six in the morning and write them. And like, I can't do that now because right. A, I mean, I'm not sleeping, but B also I'm trying to get them to school in the morning or whatever, you know? So I just can't be, and it's frustrating because you're like eliminated by things you can't control. And that's part of becoming a parent. Um, but yeah, like I said, that's a whole different conversation. So <laughs> Anyway, well, so we really appreciate you coming on. It's been awesome. Um, you know, thank you so much for sharing these things. I think it's been incredibly valuable, like I said, to me and Ben, but also, of course, to our readers. Um, you know, I would say the number one thing we talk about in this industry is labor. That was the number one thing we talked about in 2019. So it's not going to be the any different when this all hopefully eventually clears. So thank you for the insight. And before you go, if you want to just maybe sign off, tell people where they can find you if they want to reach out. Yeah, so my parents blessed and cursed me with my unique name, Michelle Falcon. Um, if you type it Michael, you've got some other person. Uh, I think I'm the only Michelle Falcon in the world. So wherever you are, whether it's YouTube or well, online searching, just go to Google, type in my first and last name, and I'm sure you'll find somewhere that you can connect me with. Um, and if you're ever in Toronto or soon to be Los Angeles, come check out Brasa Peruvian Kitchen. All right, cool. Nice. I really appreciate it for everybody out there listening as always. Yeah, thank you, and we'll see you next time.